0: Welcome to a new season of the Theology Matters podcast. This season is focused on the global issue of economic inequality, looking at how theology relates to the growing concern of widening inequality in many countries around the world. What resources can we find in religious traditions for thinking through the moral challenge of economic inequality? How might contemporary theologians and scholars of religion address this question and think through the issues at stake in a reasoned way? We begin episode one with a conversation with Devon Singh, who's an associate professor of religion at Dartmouth College. Singh's work explores questions of religion and politics, religion and economics, secularization, sociology of markets and money, and race and coloniality in relation to religion. As we'll discuss in the podcast, his first book is called Divine Currency, The Theological Power of Money in the West. It examines the ways early Christian thinkers made use of monetary and economic concepts as they created Christian doctrine, and how this close relationship between theology and money has lent a sacred aura to economics as it developed in the West. Singh is a member in CTI's workshop on religion and economic inequality, and we sat down recently to discuss his project on debt, religion, and economics. Our conversation touched on questions of how the Christian tradition deals with questions of inequality and of the role of gift exchange in early economies. After listening, send questions and comments to editor at ctenquiry.org. Thanks for joining the conversation. So Devin Singh, to start us out today, I wanted to talk to you about your your first book, Divine Currency: The Theological Power of Money in the West, which was published uh, by Stanford University Press. What was it, 2018? Yep. Uh, maybe talk a bit about how you got into that project and some of the main themes of the book.
1: So I've been interested in the connections between religion and economics for um, a number of years. Part of that. I think as a result of my upbringing, um, I grew up in a foreign service, international development sort of context. My mom was a employee of the U.S. Agency for International Development, U.S. Aid uh, arm of the State Department. And I spent a number of years of my childhood in Cameroon and Morocco. And so I was exposed at an early age to questions of development, poverty, geopolitics, obviously kinds of cross-cultural issues. Um, that planting planted a seed that I didn't realize until decades later in college when I began to explore issues more theoretically But I think some of that was drawing on those experiences and trying to make sense of that upbringing Also, I come from a multi-ethnic and inter-religious uh, family. My dad is um, of Sikh background um, from North India and my mother is Anglo-American Protestant, loosely Episcopalian and so I think religion was um, f- for at least for part of my life implicit and then became explicit in terms of an issue of interest and something of my own sort of personal exploration. And so, particularly in college, as I was thinking about <clears throat> majors and what to study, questions of kind of the big, the big questions of life, meaning of life, issues, so religion and philosophy were on the forefront. And as I delved into religion, I found myself really gravitating toward issues of um, religious responses to poverty, to development. Uh, liberation, Latin American liberation theology was an early, very formative moment for me um, and other sorts of responses to questions of religion and revolution. Is religion a sort of um, <clears throat> pacifying force that, that states or powers use to keep um, a populace yeah. subjected? Or is religion really a source of resistance and revolution? Right, These kinds of debates and questions yeah. were sort of large and thematic. And then as I progressed, progressed on in my studies and was in uh, graduate school studying religion, I really zeroed in on money specifically as, a, as an object of interest. Um, I find money endlessly fascinating as a topic. Um, you, even though we've arguably had money for millennia in human civilization, we still don't quite know what it is and can't quite agree on what it is. And We have economists, sociologists, historians, Numismaticians anthropologists all with various approaches and theories of trying to define what money is um, <clears throat> And even to this day there are debates in different schools of thought mm-hmm. In terms of where money comes from how it arose why it actually even works So it's it's this thing that's right in front of us so to speak, but also is not I mean we know that even you know with our currency our, our bills today they are symbolic like money is that money is that bill money or is is it, does it signify something else, right? So these questions I, fa- I found intellectually fascinating, and so I was able to kind of bring in different philosophical frameworks, issues of representation and um, symbolic theory, etc. So that's kind of the background and framework for why I got um, interested in that in this connection. Also, I should say that I noted that religion, and in particular Christianity, which is my area of focus, uh, uses. Monetary and economic language a lot and so I began as I paid attention to that to that I began to see it everywhere I mean we have the central theme of redemption as part of what's how salvation is expl is explained in Christian thought Redemption is an economic term to be bought back mm-hmm. um, And we often forget about that or it becomes sort of suppressed or or just sort of glanced over And so as I started to sl- sort of slow down and attend to these economic themes um and notions of humanity being bought back in in, in, in different ways and how that was described, um, I began to see these dynamics in, in Christian mm. thought in particular. And so that's part of what Divine Currency tries to open up is a conversation to take seriously economic metaphors and other concepts and images and structures at the heart of Christian thought. <clears throat> and so, yeah.
0: What have been some of the responses you've got based on the book in the last year or two? Yeah,
1: it's, Across the spectrum and there there are some folks who I think are resistant and and I and I anticipated this and I even sort of Addressed them as part of my implied readership in my book There are some folk who are resistant to this implication that Christianity makes use of and in some sense permeated by economic and monetary metaphors for some folks that is threatening Mm -hmm. Um, for some there is the this notion that somehow this taints or renders uh, Christian language and thought impure in some sense because there's a a um Predetermined notion that money is profane, profane and unclean, and so if it's used in Christian thought, this somehow implicates it. So there's people who want to push back and, and kind of deny what I believe I am seeing there as I unpack these early texts, um, and then there are folks who who agree that th- these things are there. I mean, it's, it's I think it's in some ways it's un- un- unarguable that they're there. The question then is, does it matter? What are the implications of that? And so. Um, there are there are folks that I'm in conversation with who have similar conversation partners philosophically, uh, theologically, and economically that get what I'm doing and are eager to unpack some of the implications of this this connection, which is what I'm trying to open up a conversation. You know, I dive deep into the late antique period when so-called patristic theology is being worked out with some of the church fathers, Eusebius, Gregory of Nyssa, <clears throat> others. Um, but I don't bring it up to present day because as I say that would require a multi-volume sort of thing kind of a genealogy but I want what I do to be illuminating for folks who want to talk about contemporary economics you know I I, in my conclusion I mentioned the prosperity gospel globalization there's a lot of contemporary issues that I think Mm -hmm. that I hope that what I'm doing sheds light on so I want to be in conversation with those kinds of people
0: yeah it's interesting because on the one hand we can talk about as you're doing theological or, or step back, talk about economic themes, monetary themes in the religious traditions, say in the Christian tradition. But you can also look at how there are theological or religious ideas that are present in economic language even today. So we think about faith in the market. Absolutely. Um, one of the things about the stock market is how much do people believe that it's going to keep uh, keep growing and, and so on, and that's one yeah. of the things that economists you know will talk about. So yeah. I don't know if you...
1: So a, it goes both ways. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that's, it's kind of a dialectic or a back and forth that that's at the heart of what I'm trying to, to shed a line on is that there's this ongoing relationship between the two that they've been mutually forming each other mm-hmm. for centuries. Yeah. Um, so this, this economic language of the invisible hand, of faith in the market, of market reaching equilibrium, doesn't come out of nowhere. There's a whole history of background of ta- discussions about providence, the hand of God balancing out um, societies and nations, that then, then gets appropriated by economists and quote-unquote secularized, and we can debate what that means and, and does that mean that the religion is gone or is it now under the surface? Is it implicit? There are different ways to think about that, but there is a link. There's a connection. In a, a shorter piece that I did, uh, it's, it's an article called Irrational Exuberance, um, which takes up this term that Alan Greenspan famously used to describe the market, market volatility, that there's a kind of irrational exuberance that certain people were, weren't engaging with stock trading and market activity in a calm, rational, reserved way. And I show how this language draws on a long history of critiques of religious enthusiasm and fanaticism that the reformers bring up and then mm-hmm. later, enlightenment thinkers use against all kinds of religion to say this is irrational, this is extremist, we need calm, um, controlled behavior. And so that language that critiques religious enthusiasm now is used for by economists to critique any sort of emotional volatility that people are um, you know, idolizing money or using too much emotion in, in, in the market where they should be kind of calm and reserved in a way that an ideal rational Calvinist worshipper was back yeah. in the day. So there's a, there's a potential trajectory there as well as just one example based on mm-hmm. some of the things you mentioned.
0: So you're intervening in a number of issues related to economics and, and religion or economics and theology. One of the, the focus uh, of our program here at CTI has been on the whole question of inequality, economic inequality that has been rising so much, really, for the past several decades. How do you approach that particular question as one question uh, amongst these topics you're working on? And I know your your current project, which you may want to talk to, speak to now, focuses on debt.
1: Yeah, economic, I mean, inequality is a key index, one of the many ways to think about economic relations and the morality of economic relations, right? It, it presumes there, potentially problems with inequality and a desire to rectify that, right? Um, and as I've been thinking, particularly during my time here, of the relation of debt to, to this, that debt seems to presume inequality in some way, that debt emerges as a way to manage and deal with inequality. And it can go in one of two ways, or per- perhaps more, but to rectify that and, and bridge the gap and restore somebody to a, a measure of equality by ameliorative forms of lending that are not predatory um, or it can go the other way, and that's kind of the, the, the critique of debt relations, which is exploitative, and it increases inequality um, because it takes advantage of that that disparity in power relations and resource relations and uses loans and predatory interests to, to extract even more um, wealth or labor from whoever uh, the, the debtor is. So it's uh, the, the, these issues of religion and morality are very much bound up with these questions. Um, and in terms of what, you know, what a religious framework would bring. I mean, there, are, there are a variety of lenses. Certainly one would be the moral and ethical. You know, is there a moral or ethical imperative? And even just framework to analyze inequality should something be done about it. But also in the conceptual realm, how, have, how has religion and, and theology in particular thought about inequality? Um, in what ways are inequalities sort of presumed and worked into different theological relationships?
0: Do you see much in the, the Christian tradition Focusing specifically on inequality, I, I know we have a lot on poverty and on the the problem of poverty. But if we differentiate those two, do you see resources for addressing inequality, or is that something that's going to require sort of new thinking on behalf of contemporary thinkers uh, to address that moral issue?
1: I mean, I think it's always both. There, there is there's a balance between new innovative frameworks and and the kind of wisdom we've acquired today, always in dialogue with with these traditions. I do think there are resources. I mean, we think about the prophetic tradition and 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 thinkers that draw on kind of prophetic critiques of injustice, thinking particularly in the Hebrew Scriptures, but how like then then it, that gets appropriated in certain Christian theological language. Arguably, one of the ways to understand uh, prophetic critiques is actually about inequality. It's it's not even necessarily about. I mean, it it is of course about wealth and poverty, but it's about these massive differentials between the two and the responsibilities of those in power. And those at a distance from from the least of these to manage that gap in some ways. Um, and this is something that Peter Brown, who who is a you know a very of course noted and celebrated historian, classicist, and historian of late antiquity, will note that poverty, as it's often described um, and understood, is not simply about lacking material resources, but it's about powerlessness and about a distance from those in power and those that sort of have the centers of agency and, and determination of one's life. And so poverty is about kind of, in some sense, also those gaps and those inequalities. So there's a lot of interesting thinking about that um, and ways that then the distance or nearness to God then gets transposed on how one thinks about one's distance or nearness to the emperor, to rich patrons, to uh, the wealthy, and the kinds of responsibilities that, that ensue from that. So yeah, th- there are definitely resources to for thinking about inequality in these contexts.
0: Your project on debt, now does it grow out of a, a specific aspect of your first book on divine currency? Is it a, a second step of that or how do you see it?
1: It is absolutely related um, and it, it certainly grows out of some of the questions that remained for me as I uh, inquired into money and theology in this first book. One of the issues that became clear for me is that Money is a, a token and signifier of debt and credit relationships. That's one way that I've come to understand money in conversation with um, monetary theorists that I find persuasive. So in order to fully understand money, you need to map and understand at least something more about debt relationships, um, for which money is kind of a tip the tip of the iceberg in some ways. That's why I realized there's a lot more going on besides um, accounting mechanisms and various tokens we might have, like coins and things that, that we think of as money. Um, and it relates to one's indebtedness to the state or to other kinds of powers, but also to wealthy centers of, of capital that kind of have a, a certain kind of leverage as creditors, as those who, who, might, who might lend to others in society. Also, uh, one of the themes that I end on in this book is a early Christian theory of salvation known as ransom theory where, and it's variously explained, but one of the, the major sets of themes that emerge is that humanity is in some, some kind of debt slavery to the devil personified or to death, kind of generally speaking, or sin in some sense. And what happens on the cross, what happens in terms of salvation is that Christ is offered as a kind of currency, a kind of payment or offering to the devil to liberate humanity, to make good on this debt. Um, and then I, through a particular close reading, At least of one tradition of this i show that what actually happens is that god uses these imbalances and power and these debt relationships to actually offer to the devil something even more valuable than what humanity is um, because christ is is infinite value and so God sort of turns the tables on the devil and entraps the devil in a kind of debt because the, because, God, because God has given the devil more than he actually deserves. Um, it's not even a balance exchange. So God is buying back humanity, but overpays, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so now the devil is entrapped and subjugated to God. And we see this in in medieval thinkers who who actually will say that the devil has now become a bond servant of, of God and has entered into the 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 into the Lord's household. So, <clears throat> that's all to say that debt relations and the power dynamics of debt are central to these early theories of salvation, and i my intuition is that they remain central, even as we change language to to theories of satisfaction and um, uh, penal substitution that happened later with the reformers. There are ideas of debt that are at work there that i that I want to shed a line on, so that's all to say that I ended profoundly with themes of debt, both in terms of money and as well as these tropes of salvation so this new project on debt is trying to zero in on uh, a number of themes one is how debt operates as a conceptual metaphor in christian theories of salvation god is construed as a creditor humanity is somehow a a debt slave now to god in some sense and we see this with certain second temple jewish um, texts that construe sin as a kind of debt owed to god that cannot be repaid and and so god either forgives or finds a you know finds a way and this is where theories of ransom and Christ as a compensation come in as well. Um, but debt is also related to interesting themes of gift, uh, sacrifice, guilt, these are also major themes in scripture, both Hebrew and Christian scripture and in theological tradition. Um, and I think they've been uh, elided and blended in ways that we need to sort of clarify. And so part of my project is to disambiguate debt from the many other kinds of obligations and connections that that both theology as well as just sort of life together have um, reflected on.
0: One of the words you just used was gift, and one of the things we've talked about this semester is gift exchange networks and how they might relate to the early formation of money economies. Um, This is a time of year when people are giving gifts uh, to one another uh, for various holidays. Uh, So I thought maybe I'd ask you, yeah, how do we think about gift exchange, both anthropologically in history, and even how today in a money economy there still exists gift ex- gift exchange networks.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating topic, and there's a, there's a lot of ways that one, one can think about it, and a lot of various gift dynamics. And I think part of what still needs to happen, and what I hope to do a little bit of, is clarify the different modes of, of gift exchange, because there are a variety of things that come up in the literature. But we can talk about, for instance, these anthropo- anthropological studies of archaic or so-called primitive communities that don't have money, but engage in in, in forms of exchange um, that, that have been called gift exchange, where there is a giving of an object and then some sort of delay of time and then some sort of return. Or a paying forward, if you will, a passing on of, of symbolic objects. And, um, there are there are debates about to what degree those kinds of exchanges are just symbolic, or are also of material value. Are are people using gift exchange to, to have the basic needs of life as well, or is gift exchange purely symbolic? And I tend toward seeing them seeing them both that that gift exchange functions symbolically to um, honor relationships, to uh, solidify communal bonds. But in these communities, it also was very practical. It was, you know, this, these some certain folks had these resources and others didn't, and so there were kind of this give and take of, of exchange of actual resources to live. Now the, these days, because we use money to to do that that side of things in terms of procuring the goods of life, gifts have sort of retreated, if you will, to this symbolic realm of honoring relationships, demonstrating affection, um, acknowledging. Um, status, whatever it might be, uh, and that's you know people you know moralize about that, and some some people might lament that, and I'm not necessarily taking a, a making a moral claim about how we need to get back to some sort of archaic um, idealized gift economy. Um, and also, I will say that the boundary between money and gifts is blurry. It's not as cut and dried as some would like to say. And obviously, we know that money can operate as a gift. You can give money as a gift, and it's not the same thing as buying something. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of us remember, like being actually happy to open up a grand uh, a card from our grandparents and get, you know, a few dollar bills or whatever it might be, um, as opposed to some toy we didn't actually want, right? And so there there are interesting dynamics there that we can think about. But um, in terms of like you know even just thinking about gifts in the season and being mindful of of gifts, I think it's it would be an interesting practice to reflect on our own uh, motivations for gift giving, because because it's it's a it's murky, you know, yeah. um, you know we might assume that it's just simply sort of a virtuous thing of showing care for others, but we know that motives are often multiple and perhaps giving is for our own recognition. We want to give to be seen as generous. We want to give because we feel guilty about something in the relationship. We want to give because we want to have a certain kind of leverage or power over somebody who can't reciprocate in the same way. There are various dynamics that we see observing various cultures of gifts giving that are present with us today. Um, Gifts don't always presume equality and and Sort of lovely, idyllic re- reciprocity, but um, can have these these motivations to subjugate, humiliate, etc., as well. Um, and of course, philosophers have have spilled a lot of ink thinking about whether there can be an ideal or purified gift or not. Um, and even if there perhaps can be in some abstract way as a concept on paper, in real life, it's a, it, the waters are very muddy, and so it is. At least a, I think a useful exercise to reflect on the dynamics of gift-giving that, that we are, are entering into.
0: There's a lot a lot to here to think about, Devin, and it's great that you're gonna be with us for uh, another semester so we can keep thinking about these issues and, and perhaps in the spring we can talk again uh, as the project moves forward. So thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, it's been great to have this conversation.
0: To learn more about CTI, visit our website at ctinquiry.org and follow our pages on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and leave us a review.